continue in our Luke series. Uh, we're going to take a reading from Luke chapter 19, starting from verse 54. And the little title that sits over today's talk is, Who's the one with authority? Or who's in control? And why does that matter? I think as we read this portion that will go on through into a portion of Luke chapter 20 as well, we'll see that there's a bit of a power play going on. Look out for the the indicators of those who think they have control and uh, who have authority. So Luke 19 and 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you're doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I'll also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people a parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty handed. He sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyards to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of what is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, 
And astonished by his answer, they became silent. I was amazed in a recent conversation I had with uh, a cousin of mine who works for a well-known propulsion company, I'm not going to say too much, who was saying to me that they're working on um, some propulsion systems that mean that within 10 years, so they think, there will be vehicles that float above our roads, autonomous vehicles transporting people around. Now, my mind just went, what, 10 years? And it was like, yes, 10 years. And uh, that led on to a discussion then about autonomous vehicles and the trials that are happening in the, across the world, the United States, sometimes in the UK, of vehicles that are sent out there without somebody sitting behind the wheel and behind the pedals and having control of the vehicle, rather that they move around and ferry passengers about. Now, the same individual was saying to me, it makes logical sense that that's the way things will go. If Jeff was in here, maybe he could confirm some of the research that's going on at his firm on this matter. But I don't know how your response to this is. Does it fill you with a sense of fear? Because it's this letting go of control that we've had for decades now, when we're out piloting a vehicle on the roads, it's down to us to make sure that we point it in the right direction. We have authority over that vehicle. To sort of let that go is a big concern for us. But those who do the research say it's going to be inherently safer to hand over that control to the systems that will manage and control the whole thing, improve our traffic and reduce the numbers of deaths that would be happening on our roads. You're not convinced, maybe? But that's what the indications are pointing towards. In this long section that we've read together from Luke, we see how Luke is bringing through his theme of who has the authority, that he begins at the, at the start of his gospel. You know, when a, when a Bible writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is pulling together, just doesn't sit down and randomly write stuff sitting down and thinking about what it is that he's writing and why he's pulling together. And Luke is wanting, as one of his major themes, to point us to the one who has ultimate control. And actually, in this section, he's he's telling the people that Jesus, sorry, he's telling the people to whom he wrote this, that Jesus was saying to the people, let go of the control that you have for yourselves, that you think you have all this authority, and entrust it to the one who knows best. Give it all to God. And that's the good news of the gospel. It doesn't make sense to us. A bit like autonomous vehicles and floating cars. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But if we, by our measures, see that that's going to be a better thing, then we will accept it. When it comes to God, the creator of all things, he has absolute control. But yet, human beings, all of us, have decided that we would rather wrestle that control away and have it for ourselves. And we see the consequences of that. Multiple car wrecks in everybody's lives. So, this portion of Luke, I think, is Luke stacking these incidents together that happened in the week before Jesus was crucified. So Luke, in a sense, slows down from his summary over the life that the Lord Jesus had and then his time of miracle working and teaching he slows it down for this week in the run-up to his crucifixion 
Ian last time was saying to us that Jesus had come into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and the people had been shouting to him, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Here was one that people were saying, This one has authority and it's from God. Luke wants us to see that and to submit to the same thing. I just want to dwell just a little bit of introduction here in this matter of of authority. That society today would push at us repeatedly, particularly in the West, that there is really no authority outside of ourselves to determine what is right. And what I decide is right is right for me. And nobody dare tell me that. The funny thing about that is that's actually submitting yourself to the authority of general culture, if you follow through the logic of it. That we buy into this idea that really nobody can tell us what to do, yet all the while, because we have been designed to submit to authority, we do submit to authority, the authority of governments, the authority of the law enforcement agencies, our bosses in the workplace, even within family relationships, There are authority structures that are there in place because it gives structure. But yet society is saying to us, you have the right to determine whatever you want for yourself. That would result in anarchy. It goes back to something that's in the Old Testament as we're told in the book of Judges. In anticipation of the people of Israel wanting a king, having rejected God's rule over them, they wanted a king. Repeatedly it says there that everybody was doing what was right in his own eyes. Nothing's changed. We're back at the same thing. And society will push us us. And when we fall for it, and many people do, then we're actually submitting to the authority of society and what it says. So we need to be careful and step back and think about the things that we accept. This ideology results in everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. But we have this inherent desire to accept an authority above us that is for our good and the general good of society. And then we get upset when it's not right. And that's when all the friction that results in name calling, that results in fighting, that ultimately results in war and backbiting. And we see the authority struggle that exists in our world. I was watching something yesterday and the struggle for control The way this world seems to sort it out is you take out the one who has control and replace it by somebody else. So we have this king who has arrived into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And Mark's account tells us that he went into the temple courts. The temple being the place and the symbol of God's presence among his people. He goes into the temple courts and he has a look around. Then he goes back out to the town of Bethany outside where he had friends and he stayed the night. And Luke then tells us one day, uh, sorry, verse 45, when Jesus entered the temple courts, this is the next day, if we stick it alongside Mark's account. He comes in and he goes and he drives out the people who were money changers. This is the court of the Gentiles, a place that Herod the Great in his construction of the temple had provided so that Gentiles who had converted to Judaism and were acknowledging something of the glory of the God of Israel could come and be engaged in some form of worship. But that area had been overrun by people who were selling souvenirs and sacrificial animals and making a profit out of it and money changing. The farce of the money changing thing was that the, the priests had said that Roman coinage, because it 
bore the mark of the emperor who claimed to be, the, uh, claimed to be God. That was not acceptable to pay the temple tax. So instead they would come with their Roman coinage and um, convert it to Tyrian coins of Tyre. Which, ridiculous as it is, had the symbol of Hercules on it. The Lord. He's otherwise known in the scriptures as Baal. That symbol. But So you see the mix-up of religious confusion here. But this is the reality. And this is what Jesus had gone in and seen. And he steps out of it. And he comes back into it. And he's righteously incensed. And as he pushes these people out of the way. If you imagine the scene. This is boldness. Which one of us would have the nerve to do something like this? This is a system that had been set up and was put in place and was endorsed by the leadership as we will see. And he goes in and he just kicks them all out. But notice what he quotes. He said in verse 46, It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer. He takes <coughs> that text that's brought out from Jeremiah's prophecy, Jeremiah chapter 7. And he says it's my house. One of the clearest declarations of the Lord Jesus that this was his place he'd referred to it before as his father's house but here Luke records it in this way this is my place and how dare you come in and make it a den of robbers this house of prayer this place where the Gentiles would come and that's one of Luke's major <coughs> things that the good news of who Jesus is is to, is to pull not just the Jews into the fullness of God's purposes, but Gentiles too. He says, look, you're, with all of this, you're restricting the Gentiles from giving praise to God. You've turned it upside down and you've ruined this place, my house of prayer. Just think on that a little bit more because I think that's an important statement that Luke makes for us. It tells us then that Jesus continued teaching in the temple. And notice the reaction of the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people. What's their reaction? Verse 47. It says they want to kill him. If your authority and control is threatened, what do you do? You try and remove that threat. And that's exactly what the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders of the people were trying to do. That's the world's seemingly ultimate response to any authority that threatens our own whether it be institutionalised or whether it be something that we have put in place for ourselves. Go into chapter 20 and tells us that one day, so one day during this week, just before Jesus' crucifixion, he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news. The good news is that God has a great kingdom with a great king over it. And he wants people to embrace the reality of who he is and who the king is and enjoy all of the positive glory benefits that he will give. That's the good news that he's preaching. Notice again it says the chief priests, the teachers of the law. And then interestingly, together with the elders. Here were the senior people among the crowds of Jerusalem. They come and they say, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who gave you this authority? They've been talking amongst themselves and they said, well, it wasn't me that said he could go and do that. So they come and they address them. Who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are? The Lord's response. Such wisdom that we wish we had it as Christians. He says, I'll ask you a question. The baptism of John the Baptist, was it of human origin or was it from heaven? And you see these leaders of the people, notice this, submitting 
to an unspoken authority of the mob or the crowds, to society. Here were men who were um, fearful about being stoned. Suddenly it turns from them trying to kill Jesus to them worrying about themselves being stoned because if they said, no, it's, it's of human origin, all the people believe that John the Baptist was a prophet, this was of heaven. And if we say it was from heaven, oh, well, that means that Jesus was really saying he has authority from heaven to do what he's done. Notice how they wrestle with this. And the answer in verse 7, we don't know where it was from. We would say they're chickens. They're not prepared to face the reality that is in front of them. That here was one who has all authority. The endorsement of heaven itself to do and say what he does. So Jesus answers, well neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. If we reject the evidence that points towards God. Some, I think it was Bertrand Russell was quoted once, he's, he was an ardent atheist in the last century. And somebody said to him, well, if you die and you do appear before God and you refuse that there's a God, what would you say? He said, well, you didn't give us enough evidence. That's his response. The evidence of the authority of God is there. And he spells it out more than sometimes we're willing to accept. But Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. It was clear and plain for them to see. Jesus then goes on to tell the parable of the man who planted a vineyard. So he's a wealthy man who owns a vineyard, plants it, starts it off and gets it going. It is a symbol of what God was doing with Israel. And the tenants were those that God had put in place to um, have the, the joy of being part of the vineyard setup, attending to it and bringing it to fruitfulness. That's the whole purpose of a vineyard. And the, the landowner has the right to say, well, share with me something of the fruitfulness. I was thinking about this. It says that he rented it out. If you, The person who rents a home, for example, enjoys the benefits of the home, but they don't own the home. But it would be a bit odd in our society today for um, a, a man who owns a, or a woman who owns a home or a house to say to those tenants, well, can you give me something from your house? It doesn't make sense. But back here, it was different. You had this expectation out of respect for the one who owns the thing to give something back. I'm thinking about this in the workplace. Sometimes we can be very guilty of moaning an awful lot about what happens in our workplaces. Whenever some people have put their very livelihoods on the line to provide a, a working environment that is a benefit for people. We need to be careful about what we criticise. That's a little aside. But here you have this story of the man sending three servants and they're each thrown out and go back empty handed. And you have this remarkable statement. I will send my son whom I love. Do you hear an echo? Luke chapter 3 and verse 22. Jesus had just been baptised in the river Jordan by John the Baptist and he comes back up. God the Father could not keep quiet about his son. And he said, this is my son whom I love. So here's Jesus making really very clear and plain to these people who are rejecting his authority. That he is the one with the authority. A son in that society was one who had reached an age 
where he stood equal with the father in all the business dealings. So here was the son who had been sent, the full representative of the father, to gather in some fruitfulness as a joy for the one who owns everything. And what does it say? It says, when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over and said, this is the heir, let's kill him. Do you notice what the Lord says? He says, this is the heir, that they said this is the heir. They actually knew who he was, but they took decisive action to put him to death. Paul goes into this, and Luke was one of Paul's uh, companions in Romans, the early chapters of Romans. It says that we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness about the reality of God being there. We know, deep down within us, because we've been designed this way, that he has all authority. But yet we will want to do away with him. God is dead, as it once said on the front of Time magazine. That's what we would prefer, and that's what it means to be a sinner. But here Jesus takes this story, and it's interesting that Luke says in verse 17 that Jesus looked directly at them. That's a, that's a man staring at these people, looking them eyeball to eyeball with an appeal, and I imagine with love, but also tinged with this frustration. Then what is the meaning of that which is written? And he goes back to Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You know, it's the same Psalm that the people have been singing when the king had come into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey. Within four verses, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. And this is marvellous in our eyes, as the psalmist says. And then it says, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Here was Jesus supporting the cries of the people who saw something of who he was and his authority. And he's putting it right back to the leaders who should have known more. And said, the stone that the builders reject has become the cornerstone. This is inevitable. It was written about in the Psalms hundreds of years before. God is working out his purposes. Back then when the psalm was written, it was probably relating to a Davidic king who was sitting on the throne of the people, God's choice. But here he's applying it to himself and saying, I'm the absolute fulfillment of that. I have all authority. And notice then what he goes on to say. He gives a commentary on it. <coughs> Whoever falls on that stone will be broken in pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Reject the king. Tripping over him because just gets in the way or ignoring him he will fall on you judgment is coming from the one who has all authority that's why Paul when he's preaching in Athens in Acts 17 he says God now commands all people everywhere to repent turn around for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead we're going to finish off then with the last little section then about the paying taxes to Caesar. It all fits together in Luke's um, reasoning for pulling together his, uh, these incidents. He's trying to repeatedly point to the people that he was writing to back then and to us as well. That the one who rode in on the back of the donkey, he is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He comes with the endorsement of the authority of heaven. We've seen that. He is the son who is sent by the father who loves. And he will be killed. But unlike an earthly story. 
where a son would be killed. And yes, there was judgment that would come on those tenants for their part in that. We're speaking about a saviour, the eternal son of God, who was raised from death to be the one with all authority. And it's with that in mind that then it says that the, the leaders were then trying to arrest Jesus. Try and get him out of the way because the very things he's saying challenging his authority. And it says in verse 20 onwards of chapter 20, keeping a close watching them, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. Jesus saw right through their duplicity. It's a good word that, isn't it? Um, that's there in the text. They come up with all sorts of, maybe it's genuine, but I think it was a load of fluff. When they said, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. Well, if they did, why are they trying to pull away from him? And that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. One thing about this statement, it was true. But they were speaking it and denying the truth of it. And they thought, right, we're going to catch him out. In a sense, here were, here were men that were running scared. They were scared of the, the authority of the crowds. Notice that? How power shifts when fear is involved. The, their, their own authority had been undermined by the, uh, the parable that Jesus told in the presence of the people. They heard this. So they thought, well, let's play the trump card now. And we'll take him and catch him out by the highest authority. Which is the authority of Caesar. Tiberius, the emperor of Rome. There is no greater person. According to humanity standards on the face of the planet at that time. We'll catch him out with that. So they come with their question. Verse 22. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus <clears throat> had endorsed this explicitly and said simply yes then all the crowds who saw this tax as a means of Roman oppression would probably have turned from Jesus this was clever the question they put to but if Jesus denied it then he would fall foul of the ultimate authority that was Rome and they would have grounds then to bring him up as a traitor to Rome so you see that clever given their due we're clever people we're clever at manipulating what is the truth to try and wriggle out of something that is a reality. But here we see Jesus' answer, and it's one of the become one of the most favourite interactions that I enjoy that the Lord has with people because it says something about me and about you. He says, "Get out a denarius. Get out one of those Roman coins that you pay taxes with, and whose inscription on it." So they would grab this and they would look at it. Whether they did or not, or whether they actually knew whose inscription was on it. There was the head of Tiberius. Now, Tiberius was, and actually around the coin it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, the emperor. He's the son of the divine. His inscription is on the coin. And Jesus says, right, well, you give to Caesar what belongs to him. Give back to him. That's his Give that to him. If he asks for it, you give it to him. But notice the next phrase. And give back to God what is God's. Here is Luke taking these interactions that Jesus has with the people to really hammer home the reality of who Jesus is. 
He is the ultimate authority figure. He is the one who has absolute control by virtue of who he is. And actually I think when Jesus told them to take a coin, something that was the product of the Roman Empire, that was of value, that was necessary for the sustaining of the empire, that thing that had been created had the mark of the one who was in charge on it. And Jesus then says, you give to God what is God's. What was he saying? He says, you, people that were listening, these spies in particular. He says, you've been made by God. And you bear his image. So you give back to God what is due to his name. Now that comes right to us as well. We might kick and scream and wriggle and manipulate the truth and so on in our efforts to avoid the reality that God has ultimate authority. That he has installed the Christ who has gone through death and has been raised to life again and given him the highest place in all of eternity. We can kick and scream against that as unbelievers but also as believers. But here is Jesus appealing to us as those who have been made in the image of God. Go go back to Genesis 1, 2 and 3. And we hear that humanity is a distinctive creation of God. Made in his image. Bearing the divine mark. And Jesus is saying, you give to God what is God's. What was that? That was themselves. Their whole lives. Why? Because in so doing, we give all control back to the one who knows absolutely best. We might have these qualms about floating cars and autonomous vehicles and so on because we know ultimately behind it all is human intelligence and artificial intelligence and all that that's going to control it. So therefore we're sceptical. We're not talking about human intelligence, that it's at the level of artificial intelligence. We're talking about the word, the logos, the expression of God himself. And he has made us to bear his image. And that image is tarnished. But Jesus says, give back what is due to God. So what authority will we submit ourselves to by act of choice? Will we go after the things that are the, the origin, have their origins in human authority? Or will we go with the authority that is from heaven, that is embodied in the person of the Christ? Jesus is the one who has all authority. The son sent by the father to come that there might be fruitfulness and to give over the kingdom, the vineyard, to a people producing the fruit. To be honoured by all those who submit to him. If we reject him and the things that he says in his word, whether we're a believer or an unbeliever, an unbeliever you're in great trouble. And as a believer, there's trouble too if we reject the authority of God because we, we bear the marks. The divine stamp is on us. And the best thing for us and for the glory of God is that we give to him everything of ourselves. So giving to God what is ultimately his, i.e. our lives, is what honours the ultimate authority that God is. Let's pray.